Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizade, and um, uh, it's my great pleasure today to have my friend um, Andrew Epstein on uh, the podcast to talk about John Ashbery. Um, and um, the, the, you know, really, there's there's no one better to talk Ashbery with than than Andrew. So um, I'm so glad that he agreed to come on the podcast um, and to talk about this. Um, great and um, just absolutely crucial poet. Uh, the, the poem that Andrew has picked for the episode um, is a poem called Street Musicians, which is the, the first poem in Ashbery's um, book from 1977, I think. Andrew's mm-hmm. nodding at me. Good. I've got my um, history right. Um, uh, the book is called Houseboat Days. Um, and, um, and I'm sure we'll have plenty to say as the episode goes on about you know, why that fact, which I just relayed to you might matter. Um, but before we say more about Ashbury, let me tell you something about our guest, um, Andrew Epstein. He is a professor of English at Florida State University and the author of three books. Um, the, um, the first of, of his books is called Beautiful Enemies, Friendship and Postwar American Poetry. And that was published by Oxford University Press in 2009. Um, For people who want um, to read Andrew discussing the poem that we're talking about today, that book contains um, uh, just a a beautiful and elegant reading of the poem and situates it in... um, in Ashbury's career in, in ways that I'm sure we'll talk about here. But if you want to see it in print, that's where to look. Um, Andrew's second book, um, a book that um, I really love as well, is called Attention Equals Life, The Pursuit of the Everyday in Contemporary Poetry and Culture. That too was published by Oxford University Press in 2016. Um, and and is a book, I'm, I'll make links to, to all of these books available um, in the episode notes. Um, oh, and w- that reminds me, um, I don't know how, of- how often I need to <laughs> say things like this. I shouldn't presume that everybody is listening to every episode. So if this is your first episode, you should know that in the, in the episode notes, you'll also be able to find a link to the text of the poem that we're talking about. So for people who would like to look as well as hear it, um, you can find it there. Um, most recently, Andrew is the author of a book um, um, called The Cambridge Introduction to American Poetry Since 1945. Cambridge likes these very straightforward titles <laughs> as part of a, uh, um, a series of such introductions. But Andrew's written a beautiful one and such a valuable book to have. Um, that was published um, by Cambridge University Press, I think, at the very end of 2022. Is that right? Um, yeah, or January 23. Or, okay. Um, <laughs> is that like a, depending on which side of the Atlantic kind of thing? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so, so that book has this um, ambitious um, um, task of telling the story of American poetry from, from 1945 to more or less the present. And, um, and you know, um, as I'll as I'll talk about in a minute, um, it, the book couldn't have a better author for, for a task like that. So, um, um, aside from the books, Andrew um, regularly blogs about the New York School of Poets um, at a, um, a blog called Locus Solus. Um, and I wonder, maybe we should, 
maybe we'll even have occasion to talk about the blog, Andrew, and to talk about the title of the blog, which is an interesting one. Um, and and of course, I'll make a link available to that blog. Um, th- that blog is like a first place I often go when I'm curious about some, um, you know, obscure corner of New York school poetry history. And often um, Andrew has the answer ready and waiting for me there. Um, and then he's written, you know, mostly but not exclusively about poetry. So, I, you know, Andrew writes you know, mostly about poetry, but is is interested more broadly in um, 20th century and 21st century literature and culture, um, art, um, for publications like the New York Times Book Review, uh, Contemporary Literature, the Los Angeles Review of Books, American Literary History, the Wallace Stevens Journal, Comparative Literature Studies, Jacket 2, and Raritan. Um, I like how that list of um, venues sort of indiscriminately mixes the <laughs> scholarly and the kind of public facing and journalistic. I think that tells us something about the kind of guest we have here. Um, Andrew is in my way of, of thinking of him, you know, sort of first and foremost, a kind of literary historian, um, s- someone who um, has um, at his fingertips, and um, not that this kind of thing comes comes easily. It's the product of um, many years of devoted research, um, a kind of story of American poetry and of American literature more broadly, um, and and you know to some extent beyond um, the shores of this country as well. Um, uh, um, uh, literature and culture from the the, the past century and a half. Um, he um, he he is the person to whom I turn, sort of, uh, you know, in off the record kinds of ways, when I want to know, like, have I got this um, this uh, question of influence right, or have I, you know, d- would so and so have read such and such by the time they wrote such and such? You know, I ask Andrew, and and he's normally got an answer for me. Um, but of course you can find that history in his books too and on his blog. Um, uh, but, you know, beyond that, Andrew's history, um, his way of doing literary history. And I think this is partly by virtue of, well, two things really one his his interest in kind of literary theoretical and philosophical questions. And two, the sense I have, um, and that one, you know, anyone would have reading his stuff, that Andrew cares deeply about the art forms that he's writing about himself as art forms, that he's a beautiful reader of, of texts and of um, images and of other kinds of avant-garde experimental artistic practices. Um, he, he, because I think he's got that philosophical and literary theoretical background. And because he's such a sensitive reader of texts, his literary histories always wind up telling us something about the way we live now. Um, So, you know, the first book about friendship, you know, appeared at a moment when social media was really at the sort of moment of flowering into <laughs> whatever it has now become, you know, a little more than a decade ago when Facebook um, felt omnipresent, where um, uh, Twitter had recently, I think, launched, um, you know, somewhere in the background, maybe of Andrew's book is 
are, are sites like Friendster. I mean, these are all <laughs> things like in the in the deep background. I'm not saying the books are about these things, but reading the book, you felt like you were learning something about the way friendship and rivalry and social networks um, sort of functioned in culture um, in the culture that surrounded you. Um, his second book about attention, I mean, could in, in ways that I don't need to elaborate here, couldn't have couldn't be more timely. Um, that's a book about the kind of interrelation of um, the the topic of attention as a kind of philosophical or phenomenological question, and what Andrew calls everyday life projects. Um, so um, uh, works of art that that have sort of formal and thematic concerns with um, what ordinary experience is like, what the everyday is like. In in both of those books, um, the New York School Poets, and we'll say more about what that term even means um, in a moment, uh, feature prominently, but Andrew is um, sort of Catholic, lower C Catholic in his tastes, and is um, is more than happy to situate um, like that kind of coterie of poets about whom he's a real expert in a wider literary landscape, and that's one of the many reasons why I so value his work. Um, you know, in then Andrew's last book, it, it occurs to me is about a period. It's sort of like I, I get. I think Andrew and I are about the same age. When when we were in grad school. Um, there was this period referred to as the contemporary. And what that meant was like everything after 1945, it's becoming harder and harder to call that contemporary in a way. But, um, but of course, Andrew's work is capturing some of the ways in which that term still applies. And, um, and I'm, and so I'm grateful for it. And I'm, I'm just super grateful to have you here. Um, Andrew Epstein, uh, how are you doing uh, today? Speaking of the everyday. I'm great. <laughs> I'm doing very well. Uh, thanks so much for the introduction. I'm very happy to be here. Oh, good. Um, and I'm so glad we get to talk about Ashbury together. Um, you know, as I was saying to you before we started uh, recording today, uh, we've had all kinds of poets already featured on this podcast, and some of them I um, I have the sense going into recording will be un- relatively unknown to our listeners and then others more famous. Um, and I suppose Ashbury, I-, I would think, falls towards the more famous end of that spectrum. But um, having said that, I, I really like not to assume that our listeners know very much about um, things that we come into these conversations, um, you know, stuffed to the gills with um, stories and context um, at hand. So maybe we could begin the, the, the conversation today, Andrew, with your telling the relatively uninitiated listeners, like, uh, who was John Ashbery? Sure. Um, mm-hmm. How was he someone that whom you came to care about? And then maybe if you could wind up by telling us something about where the poem that you've chosen for us sort of fits into all of that, that would also be really useful. Sure. Yeah. Um, so for people who aren't that familiar with it, um, John Ashbery was uh, considered by the time he died in 2017, probably the most famous living American poet, but his career was always sort of, and his work was always sort of controversial um, in that it seemed very difficult and unusual um, and his rise to fame was accompanied by a lot of people saying, you know, how do we read this guy? Why is, you know, what does the emperor have any clothes? That sort of thing, which we can talk more about that debate. But to go back to the beginning, he was born in 1927 in Western New York state and grew up basically sort of on a farm and in a remote location and, um, uh, and then um, grew up as a very kind of precocious artsy kid. And then um, 
liked uh, classical music and art and poetry and then went to Harvard where he uh, studied literature and poetry writing and he got to know a couple of other poets that became really important to his life and career, um, Kenneth Koch and uh, Frank, A- Frank O'Hara, who mm-hmm. um, became his very close uh, friends. And eventually, Ashbury, after graduation, moved to New York. And that group of poets all kind of gathered there in about um, 1949, 1950 or so, and formed the nucleus of this movement that Cameron mentioned, uh, the New York School of Poets. Although none of them were really from New York, they all uh, came from elsewhere. And mm-hmm. after college, kind of gathered in New York. And um, there's a lot to say about the movement, but they all were very interested in modern art and painting and in the avant-garde. Um, they kind of rejected the reigning kind of stuffy conventions of um, mid-century mm-hmm. formalism and T.S. Eliot and his descendants. And so they were styled themselves as avant-garde experimental writers who were very immersed in the art world. And Ashbery wrote very um, kind of strange experimental poems um, <laughs> and didn't have a, a huge readership, but he did win a big prize for his first book that was given by right. W.H. Auden, a book called Some Trees that came out in 1956. And uh, he uh, um, continued writing on into the uh, 60s and into the 70s where we get to our poem, but um, right. he was sort of on the margins. He says in one poem, that's sort of autobiographical, barely tolerated, living on the margin of our <laughs> technological society. So he he definitely started out as a kind of marginal avant-garde poet, um, but he gradually uh, grew closer and closer to the center and to canonization. And um, in uh, his, I guess, sixth, fifth or sixth book, uh, Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror that came out in 1975, um, won all of the big prizes that year. And he won the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award and the National Book Award. And he I've always suddenly, heard it described as the, uh, the, the triple, triple crown. Yeah, the triple <laughs> crown, right. Everybody always says that. The triple yeah. crown of poetry that year. And suddenly, it was gradual then sudden, but he was very famous. And uh, this mm-hmm. is when a bunch of books came out that were there was a book edited by David Lehman called Beyond Amazement, which was sort of like, how do we go beyond just being like, wow, this guy's, I don't know what he's talking about, but he's famous. Like, how do we start to analyze his work and stuff? So there was a moment in the late seventies when uh, critics like Harold Bloom and a lot of other people, Helen Vandler and Marjorie Perloff were all writing about Ashbery and made And those for people who don't know are like probably the three giants of poetry criticism in the, second half of the 20th century or the last few decades of the 20th century. Yeah. Right? yeah. And one thing to say about them also, which maybe is indicative of Ashbery's unusual status is that just for example, Marjorie Perloff and Helen Bendler are often thought of as poets right. interested in different sides of um, sometimes called the poetry wars or whatever you want to call it. But the, the landscape right. of American poetry where Marjorie Perloff has been a champion of the avant-garde and Helen Bendler has definitely been more interested in uh, you know, sort of traditional, less avant-garde poetry, however you want to right. put it. But um, the fact yeah. that they both are interested, as well as Harold Bloom, um, in Ashbery suggests the way in which he um, became a figure that was um, that had appeal for both uh, sort of experimental poets and and their and and right. scholars interested in that work, and also um, sort of more mainstream um, audiences. So, uh, and then yeah. uh, he had a very long career, and he went on writing. Um, voluminously up until 2017 and so um he uh and and went on to be as i said sort of considered the the great living american poet but um uh still baffling audiences kind of all the way until (laughs) until the end um and so it seemed um, like almost almost until the end of like a book a new book almost every couple of years or especially sometimes even yeah 
the last 20 years there was a or last mm-hmm. 15 years there was almost a book a year so he kind of sped up in his production toward the end mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but a voluminous mm-hmm. amount of poetry written um, and uh, this book and this poem that we're going to talk about comes right uh, it's not really the middle but it feels a little bit like the middle uh, it's, right. it's, it's uh, his eighth book and it's the book that um, came right after the breakthrough success of um, self-portrait in a convex mirror and we can talk a little bit more about that and just um, doing I, some quick yeah. quick math here. If he, so, he was born in twenty seven. Yes. Um, so he was fifty. Fifty when, when the book came, came out, out. and right. forty eight when the poem was published because right. it came right. out a couple years before. Oh yeah. Um, okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you were going to say something else though. Oh, I mean, just to go back to your initial um, oh, right. question about yeah. sort of how I um, came to Ashbury. Um, yeah. Uh, I think that. Um, was aware of him in college, but um, didn't know much. Uh, he did come and read from his very long poem flowchart at Bryn Mawr College. I was at I was at Haverford College, and it was right down the road. And I went and saw him read, and I didn't understand a word of it, but I thought it was beautiful. You know, I, I thought every line was interesting, but I had no idea what to make of the whole thing. And uh, so I saw him read in about I don't know nineteen ninety or so. And then when I got to graduate school. Um, I actually had this sort well, I, I took a class in which I read Ashbury and it suddenly clicked for me that I thought he was really fascinating and interesting. Yeah. And I, I loved Wallace Stevens and I was really interested in the connections between Stevens and Ashbury. But then I also had this really fortuitous experience where I um, was asked to be the um, sort of teaching assistant and research assistant for Kenneth Koch, who, as I mentioned before, uh-huh. was one of um, Ashbury's closest friends and one of the central figures of the New York School of Poets. So I had this accidental firsthand introduction to the world of Coke, Ashbury, O'Hara, through my working with Kenneth Coke, and I became close with Coke, and I worked with him for about seven years running a reading series while I was in graduate school. Right. But for one year, I was his assistant. And the first thing he had me do, I think the very first day I met him, maybe, was he gave me a bunch of paper and said, um, a stack of paper and said, can you go Xerox these? And it was um, letters and postcards that John Ashbury had written to him over the course of decades oh that he God. had just, in, they weren't in the library or anything at this right. point. This is 1993 or four, 1994. Right. And they were just in his home. And so he asked me to Xerox them for him. This was actually in order to give them to David Lehman, who was writing a book about the the movement. Um, is that the last avant-garde? The last avant-garde, yeah. Right. yeah. So I started reading them and instead of quickly Xeroxing them all, I just was just absolutely, you know, sort of um, amazed and and engrossed in reading this private correspondence between these two poets that I thought were very interesting poets. How, and uh, so um, it was a little voyeuristic how, how, and totally how, fa- how, fascinating. How did Ashbery <laughs> strike you as a letter writer? He's an amazing letter writer. He's really funny and yeah. um, and they're very gossipy and chatty, but also filled with interesting commentary about poetry and art and yeah. um they're they're sort of a gold mine. I assume they'll be published at some point. But. Yeah. Oh, right. I'm sure. Um, I've um, I've read um, many of James Schuyler's letters to John Ashbery, yeah. which are in in Schuyler's collected letters. And I guess I just wanted to point out too for people who haven't or who are noticing this or thinking about this, of people interested in the New York School, um, and and are following along with this podcast. Remember, our very first episode all the way back was with Brian Glavy on Frank O'Hara, and then we had a more recently a, an episode with um eric lindstrom on james schuyler so we're quickly work you know <laughs> eventually we're going to work our way through the the the, ma- the major figures of the new york school of course those aren't the only ones right um, but and there's um, also uh, yeah. you know barbara guest and and a yeah. whole host of second generation figures like alice right. Nally and bernadette mayer and stuff but um right. those yeah the the three that we've talked about so far you've talked about so far are, yeah. are cent- central figures in this movement and, and close friends 
Skyler um, wasn't in your story. He sort of came because he wasn't at Harvard, right? right. So he came, sort of came in later. He yeah. comes in just a couple years later in New York, and he becomes one of Ashbury's closest friends. Um, right. They have a, a particularly close bond. Ashbury so and when, Skyler. So when you were working for for Coke, did did you? Um, that's a fascinating story about getting uh, getting to um, read and, and then mm-hmm. copy um, those <laughs> uh, those letters and postcards. Um, but did you have chance to sort of um, be in rooms with John Ashbery too and, yeah, and get to know him personally? Yeah. Yeah. One thing that was amazing about working with Coke is that he introduced me personally to a whole world of um, poets in New York and, and beyond who would come to New York or read on campus. And this reading series that I ran with Coke, um, pretty early on, we had Ashbery read in it, I think mm-hmm. twice. And um, so I had the um, opportunity to meet him a few times. Um, and I never really got to know him well. I got to know other people better. He was a little mm-hmm. a little hard to to get to know as a, a young you know grad student kid. Um, and then later, I did have some correspondence with him about my work and um, uh-huh. which he read. And I, I might say more about that later if you want. But oh uh, yeah, I will want. <laughs> I will want. Good. So um, okay. So um, that's that's all really fascinating, Andrew. And. Um, uh, you know, uh, I, th- I think you've set things up beautifully. I mean, in a moment, I'd, I'd like to um, play a recording of Ashbury reading. Um, he's he's a poet that um, I guess because he was so famous and his career went on so long and because he was amenable to this kind of thing, like we just have this great wealth of recordings of Ashbury mm-hmm. um, at poetry readings and so on. And so we had a couple of, um, as you pointed out to me before we started here, there are a few recordings of street musicians that um, we can play. Is there anything you'd want to say by way of setting up the recording before we play um, it? No, this, he mentions that he's reading this and it's still unpublished. So this is 1975. Mm-hmm. And the, the poem came out in the New York Review of Books in 75. Mm-hmm. And then it became the lead off poem in the, in the book to come, right. Houseboat Days in 1977. And um, so he's uh, about 48 here. And um, yeah. he, I think just maybe to situate it a little bit, he um, has just gotten uh, I'm not sure if he had won the Pulitzer Prize at this point, but he was right. about to. And then he was getting uh-huh. a lot of acclaim. And this poem, I think, as we'll talk about, feels like it's sort of um, reflective of a position right. uh, in his life and sort of a middle-aged moment of looking back huh. to a kind of distant origin point. And the poem, as you'll see, is about the loss of, of another person and what happens to the person right. who's kind of living on after that. So that's just Beautiful. Uh, something to listen for. Okay, so this is Ashbury um, reading in 75. Um, 75, you said, yeah? Yes. 19, mm-hmm. Right, okay, right. In 1975, um, I'll make this link um, available. And the whole um, archive, I mean, there, there are plenty of places where one can find recordings of Ashbury, but maybe the the single best place to go to look for them is the Penn Sound Archive, which is a just a marvelous archive in general. So um, I'll, I'll link to that as well. But here is um, John Ashbury. Let's listen and then talk about it. This one is called Street Musicians. This is now an unpublished poem. One died, and the soul was wrenched out of the other in life, who, walking the streets, wrapped in an identity like a coat, sees on and on the same corners, volumetrics, shadows under trees. Farther than anyone was ever called, through increasingly suburban airs and ways, with autumn falling over everything, the plush leaves, the chattels and barrels of an obscure family being evicted into the way it was and is. The other beached glimpses of what the other was up to, revelations at last. So they grew to hate and forget each other. 
So I cradle this average violin that knows only forgotten show tunes, but argues the possibility of free declamation anchored to a dull refrain, the year turning over on itself in November, with the spaces among the days more literal, the meat more visible on the bone. Our question of a place of origin hangs like smoke, how we picnic in pine forests, in coves with the water always seeping up, and left our trash, sperm, and excrement everywhere smeared on the landscape to make of us what we could. All right. Um, Andrew, uh, I, I think I know the answer to this, but I don't know that our audience would. like. Um, and, and maybe I'll be surprised by your answer in any case. Um, you listen as you listen to Ashbury read. Like, is this a typical kind of reading for him of a poem? And, and like, what do you notice just first of all about the way John Ashbury reads a poem to the extent that this is typical? Um, I think that Ashbury divides audiences in their um, sense of whether they like how he reads or not. I mean, yeah. I, I think Ashbury people sometimes talk or poetry people talk about this, and he has a kind of flat. Um, conversational way of reading. He doesn't use poet voice. Um, right. He has a kind of, um, I don't know, somebody who describes it or he describes it as like a Midwestern because he's from Western New York, like a kind of like uh, rural sort of, I don't know, twang. He, he makes fun of himself right. for having. So he reads in a way that might not be to everybody's liking and took me a while to warm up to it. Um, uh -huh. He doesn't, you know, give you lots of highs and lows and, and uh, dramatic um, sort of inflection. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I have come to really like the way he reads. And and then when you and I were talking about which one to use, I listened to the three or four that are on Penn Sound, or maybe there's five. Um, and I particularly like this one because I actually think that it does. It is quite, um, there is some pathos and some uh, yeah. emotional uh, yeah. resonance in this one. And, and some of the other ones he, he reads a little more quickly or whatever. So I, I find it a moving reading of this. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I think some people might not expect this from uh -huh. what they think a poetry reading might sound like. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, and, um, and you know, we can think of um, lots of different kinds of examples of more or less contemporary poets who read in, in quite different ways. Mm -hmm. um, I only got to see Ashbury read once in, in person. And, and for me, the experience was sort of like a revelation because it, it wasn't until then that I think I understood, I mean, this poem isn't the best example of it, that he was funny, you know, yeah. the, the, um, and it was, a, but you know, a very kind of flat, you know, deadpan kind of humor, um, right. which Especially I don't the, think I later, appreciated. Yeah. Later work has a lot of kind yeah. of slapstick humor and, um, yeah. and, and those readings that probably the one you went to, um, yes, often yeah. were, were very funny. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, and this one's not as funny. But, yeah. That's okay. Um. <laughs> that's it. Well, this one is in fact quite, um, moving right from the get go in a way that is maybe, I mean, uh, you know, Ashbury wrote enough poems that at the minute you say like, well, this, he doesn't do this kind of thing. Often you immediately think of another example or two of a case in which he does, but right. I want to say, and, and maybe you can um, clarify for us that, that this is a kind of um, unusually self-disclosing and kind of emotive opening um, for a poem. One died and the soul was wrenched out of the other in life and, and, and then it goes yeah. on. Um, I'm sure there's a lot to say just about those opening, that opening line and a half. Um, so I turn yeah, it over I know, to you. I agree with you. Yeah. It is more direct and emotive than a lot of Ashbury. Um, and uh, uh, he certainly writes about death and mortality a lot, but this mm -hmm. is sort of disarmingly direct. Um, on the other hand, something we can talk mm -hmm. about is that it doesn't say, you know, 
Sam died and I was yeah. really sad, right? And then there's a whole issue here about the sort of deflection right. of self-disclosure at the same time that it is self-disclosing. But um, right. there is an emotional directness to it. And it's a very stark, blunt opening. One died. And, yeah. this, and the soul of, you know, it's quite dramatic. The soul was wrenched out of the other in life. Um, it's a pretty, you know, aligned a, a with a lot of, um, yeah, I guess emotional and gravitas and, and the idea of a soul being wrenched out. I, I find it, you know, like you said, sort of um, uncharacteristic of Ashbury in in that sort of the power of that opening. You, you know what I had never thought of until just this very moment was um, the way um, in um, per, the way Persian um, fairy tales begin. You know how we say "once upon a time" in in English. Mm-hmm. In 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 Iran or in Farsi, people say "yekibud, yekinabud," and what it what it means is like one was one wasn't hmm. and it's like another way of sort of putting you in a kind of in between land of is this true or isn't it you know um interesting yeah um, and well and I, I know that i know that ashbury knew persians well the, when you mentioned <laughs> that you can you know, say his, more about that yeah his um at that point partner and later husband david kermani uh, who he had started seeing about four or five years before this poem was, yeah. per, was iranian and yeah and, yeah. Uh, I was a Persian rug dealer. Um, yeah. and, and, uh, and I wonder. And, uh, I don't know. It uh, seems and, not impossible to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but okay. And so maybe we can say, well, since we've already introduced the topic of biography, and I yeah. know, I mean, clearly this is not a case in which we'll, I mean, the poem won't let us do a kind of dumb, biographically reductive reading. But having said that, it invites and I think probably rewards a certain amount of biographical mm-hmm. um, attention. Um, so, d- Andrew, who, what, like, what are what are some ways that we might think about who who this one yeah. is for for Ashbury? Well, for those those of you who haven't really spent much time with Ashbury, he um, is not an autobiographical poet, and right. he. Um, talks a lot about the fact that he's not in interviews. He says things like, you know, my biography doesn't come into my poetry much. I'm not particularly mm-hmm. interesting. You know, my own biography has never interested me very much as material for literature. So he kind of is always saying things like that. And his poetry is famously um, sort of indeterminate about who or what it's about. And he uses mm-hmm. pronouns in a way that are very vague. Um, one, you, we, you never know exactly mm-hmm. what he's referring to. And he also creates what he says someplace, uh, paradigms of common experience or another place he ca- talks about one size fits all confessional poems, or he calls one mm-hmm. of his poems that a one size fits all confessional poem. So I, I think on one level, this poem is sort of like a, a paradigm of a kind of common experience, which is being close with somebody, having them die, and then living on after they right. died and feeling right. yourself aging and growing further and further away from that person. Um, the arc of the poem is sort of from, uh, yeah. you know, uh, is about it's about grief and it's about surviving in the wake of somebody's uh, departure, and then um, at the end about sort of looking back to the past and remembering some point of origin with that person, perhaps. So uh, on one level, it's sort of vague, and, and anybody can sort of relate to that. Live but, long enough, and you'll have that experience, right? right. And, and I think that's why it's a, a poignant mm-hmm. poem, a, a poem of middle age, a poem of aging, which we can talk mm-hmm. more about, but. Mm-hmm. Um, my interest in the poem uh, also initiated with my interest in how Ashbury does write about his life and does, um, as yeah. he says someplace, I don't write about my experiences, I write off of my experiences, um, huh. which is an interesting distinction, but uh, yeah. that he, he sort of uses them as a 
point of departure and, and often kind of disguises them or allegorizes them. But, so just uh, by changing the preposition from about <laughs> to off. Yeah, that's nice. It gives us a sense of like, well, life as an occasion for poetry or right. something, right? Yeah. Rather than subject matter necessarily. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's okay. that's key to Ashbery. Um, and yeah. so I was interested in this poem as an elegy. Uh, mm-hmm. And this goes way back to the, the first book that you mentioned and actually yeah. my dissertation before that, that I was um, really interested in the interplay of kind of friendship and competition and rivalry between various post-war American poets, and particularly Frank O'Hara and John Ashbery were of interest to me. And for those of you who don't know, or uh, uh, mm-hmm. Frank O'Hara, who was one of his closest friends and a fellow New York school poet, um, tragically died at the age of 40 in 1966 in a tragic accident um, on a beach in Fire Island, New York. And so uh, this was a terrible blow for everybody who knew Ash- who knew O'Hara. And it was a particularly, yeah. I think, very um, uh, you know, terrible grief that Ashbery felt lo- losing his best friend at the age of 40 in a bizarre accident. And so um, I started to look for signs that Ashbery, who's notoriously doesn't write about his life, was actually writing off of uh, his right. friendship and experience um, with O'Hara and the, and the loss of, of, of a close friend and a fellow poet, which I think is key for this poem. And so um, uh, I actually, mm. you know, this, this is going back to my initial interest in this poem was, uh, well, I think I already liked the poem, but then I, I was writing a, about this issue of friendship and, and O'Hara and Ashbery and Marjorie Perloff said in her book on O'Hara, one poet who did not write an elegy for Frank O'Hara, which a lot of people did, <laughs> um, even though he wrote the beautiful introduction to collected poems was John Ashbery. Right. He did, right. She said he didn't write. And, and I started to... Find these examples of poems that I thought were elegies for O'Hara, yeah, and right. so yeah. I made I made a case that this poem, um, on just on one level, doesn't need to be read this yeah. way. It can be read in lots of different ways, but for me, it's particularly moving to think of it as a as yeah. an elegy for a fellow poet who has died young. And we can um, strengthen the case, although maybe in a moment we want to. Um, interestingly complicated or something yeah. by by reminding our listeners of the title of the poem, right? Right. Which, so for me, that was sort right. of a clue. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, yeah. I, uh, it, you know, Ashbery's poem, poem titles are notoriously, um, in, you know, um, mm-hmm. no, well, misleading, they're notorious, right? misleading. <laughs> uh, they don't necessarily connect to the poem. They sometimes mm-hmm. are a kind of red herring or they point in yeah. a direction away from the poem. Like they're, they're always complicated. They're not just yeah. like how other poets give titles to poems, but this one actually seems pretty closely tied to the poem yeah. in that it yeah. seems to be um, about a, a pair, you know, one and the other. Right. And they, and then the second stanza, it says, so I cradle this average violin. Yeah. And uh, there are references that make it seem like these are two street musicians. That's and right. so um, uh, street musicians are like, you know, uh, sidewalk buskers or people who play in the subway mm-hmm. or on the street. Mm-hmm. But I kind of see it as maybe a trope or a metaphor or a figure for um, uh uh, like a, a fellow poets, a group of poets. And then, yeah. you know, in, in my book, I made the, the maybe a stretch, but, you know, the street and musicians made me think of New York, like kind of yeah. urban, urban artists, you know? Right. And uh, so I, I don't think it's too much of a stretch. I think that um, in, in a way it feels like a, a metaphor for, uh, especially given what the poem is about for he and his, his friends, his fellow New York poets uh, who are kind of street musicians in a way. And I think of O'Hara even more than of Ashbery as a poet of 
I mean, sure. among other things, of the streets of New York, right? right. Like r- writing about, you know, in his famous lunch poems or the I do this, I do that poems, right? Right. Writing Very about much walking so. around on the streets of New York, right? Yeah. So if he has O'Hara in mind, the street mm-hmm. would be mm-hmm. close behind, right? O'Hara right. is certainly right. a poet of the streets. And then the it's, figures, it's, hard, it's harder yeah. in many cases to even identify settings in Ashbury poems. They seem right. to take place on the page or something more right. than O'Hara's might. Yeah, and yeah. you do have cities coming in and out, but it's yeah. not the same as O'Hara's "I do this, I do that" walking around New York poems. But um, okay, but there's but, another yeah. there's another possibility here, right? For for biographical in a biographically inflected oh, reading. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I, I think you're talking about the fact that it also feels like it could be a sibling relationship. Yeah, maybe uh, um, because yeah. Um, you know. I, I assume you you know you could read it as a love poem. One died, mm-hmm. and the soul of the other was wrenched out. But there are signs to me that it, it that it's more about like sort of either friends or possibly siblings. And there's a reference in line like what nine or so um, mm-hmm. about an obscure family being evicted yeah. into the way it was and is. And um, I started to realize that Ashbery, when he writes about um, uh, what seem to be friends, he often is simultaneously writing about siblings and and brothers mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um uh it, um ashbury had a very tragic event in his childhood where he had a younger brother who died when yeah. uh, ashbury was i don't know about nine or so um or maybe the brother was nine i'm not sure of the exact ages but he lost right. his brother and he never talked about it for decades until right. close to the end of his life he gave some interviews where he mentioned it and that seemed to me maybe another subtext here that he right. frequently is thinking about friendship and siblinghood. It, it, it kind of blur together. And he yeah. said some kind of poignant things about um, the loss of his brother and how he, he died at the age of nine. I felt guilty because I wasn't getting along with him. I'd been nasty to him. So that was a terrible shock. And right. someplace else he talks about like a kind of um, uh, that he had like a mythical kingdom in the woods with his brother and friends but then his brother died and and the group kind of broke up and he always kind of wanted to get back to that early childhood um mystical kingdom yeah mythical kingdom so um and he's got that that, poem later in his life right right? the history of my life is it yeah which has a relevant line it sounds a lot like this poem his it says uh once upon a time there were two brothers then there was only one myself which is one of the more autobiographical lines in his whole body of work and so, you know, one died and the soul of the other was wrenched out in life. Right. You know, once upon right. a time, there were two brothers, then there was only one myself. So it, it does seem like a poem about losing someone close to you that could either be a friend or, or a brother. And actually, I have an observation now to make uh, about the about the uh, coming back into this poem, about, yeah. but about those lines. So one died I, and it, it's not and the and the soul of the other was wrenched out. It's it's a, it's the the syntax is slightly more confusing than that. Right. It's like one died. Yeah. And the soul was wrenched out. And then we get a line break so that, you know, if you were to, you know, pause, you know, upon a first reading of the poem there, you might think that, oh, what's being described is the soul leaving the body of the one who died. Right. Right. But then it's only after the line break that you get of the other in life. So one died and the soul was wrenched out of the other in life. Um, Yeah, that's nice. I hadn't thought of that, but it does. I think uh, Ashbury does this quite frequently where it's sort of the meaning shifts with the line break. And so you do get this almost like a 
I don't know, like a, from a cartoon or something of like, you know, Bugs Bunny or something when he dies and right. then like the ghost kind of goes up, you know, one yeah, died but, and the soul was wrenched out. But, but then, you, you listeners can't see this, but both Andrew and I are sort of simulating what it might look like for a soul to leave a body with our hands. So just imagine us doing that. Um, and, and, and then, it, and then in a way it's like the, there's something odd to me about the way syntax and is like working and especially in the first part of the poem the first so so one thing we haven't said for people who aren't looking at it is that the poem is in two um stanzas that are um so like two blocks of lines um so when we were you know if i for if i refer to the first half and the second half that's that's what i have in mind um the, where it's like i don't know like there's some it's like it keeps getting away from you or something like it's hard to read uh, the mm-hmm. syntax that is um but but maybe what it's doing is sort of simulating what it's like to outlive someone I, or to survive. I think so, yeah. yeah. That kind of winding syntax um, yeah. is sort of similar to the the experience of the other who needs to keep walking streets and seeing on and on, like kind of like making their way into the future alone without the other. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, do, I think that's intentional. There's some other weird things with syntax too, like missing uh, yeah. the plush leaves, the chattels and barrels. Like I don't get uh, that that line. Yeah. Yeah. We can come back to it, but okay, um, good. Yeah, um, but yeah, no, I, I think, I think that makes sense to me. Um, so you know, I, I think it's um, about um, a really crushing experience read from the first lines that the, mm-hmm. the, the, the other. Um, he keeps using these words one and other, but the, the other mm-hmm. in the first stanza uh, has to endure in the wake of somebody dying and, um, and, and uh, walking the streets wrapped in an identity like a coat sees on and on the same corners volumetric shadows under trees yeah talk about i mean i'm so i'm so i'm interested in wrapped yeah. in, an, in an identity yeah. like a coat i'm interested in the weird word volumetrics yes and, you know, I know. Um, so it, i mean it seems like it's this like um journey again sort of the the, the lone mm-hmm. survivor who i don't know if it's kind of a weariness of sees on mm-hmm. and on or maybe also like can see um, see further than he used to be able to see sort of like with, with, uh, with experience comes, you know, wisdom or greater vision or mm-hmm. something like that. But wrapped in an identity, like a code is a kind of a somewhat typical Ashbury sense of like selfhood is not fixed or, right. um, um, essential. We don't have a core of a self in Ashbury. It's always kind of mutable and in flux. Um, so, you know, you can put on an identity like a coat, but it's not, um, right. permanent. You know, yeah. I, so I feel like it has something to do with that. Yeah, yeah, that that sounds right to me. Not permanent, but also, you know, wrapped in an identity like a coat suggests that you like um, that you'd be cold without it. <laughs> that right. you, you're sort of though you could take it off, you're kind of clinging to it for the time being. Yeah, which I feel than like just has sort of like to... loosely wearing it or something. Right. You know? Protective. I mean, it seems mm-hmm. like it has something to do with sort of how to go on without the other. Right, um, wearing this this sort of protective identity, you know, right. who I am now without you, something like that. Right, and, um, seeing the same corners maybe is like I'm still walking the same streets that we used to be street musicians on. Right, you know, uh, it does sound uh, like an urban landscape: corners, right. volumetric shadows under trees. I'm right. imagining like a New York City street with trees, you know, planted. Yeah. by design or something right not, not a forest or something yeah like and and we're definitely not in we're in the city here which mm-hmm. again maybe is a sign of new york schoolness maybe it's a, yeah. just a nod to the title of these are 
street musicians and one, mm-hmm. only one musician's left and he's seeing the same places they used to, to be or whatever. But there's that really weird word, volumetrics. I was thinking that, yeah. you know, what other poet can get away with using the word volumetrics here, which means like, uh, it's such a strange word. And um, he often will just surprise you with uh, an unexpected word that you might not even think uh, fits, but it's a, a word that has to do with like, you know, volume or measurement. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not usually, it's an adjective. I looked it up uh-huh. and I was like, because uh-huh. it's like, you know, uh, you know, um, uh, volumetric, um, what was it? I found an example, Picasso. A volumetric loved, beaker or something. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Or Pic- yeah. Picasso loved playing volumetric representationalism off of flatness. Right. Like an adjective for something that's like three-dimensional. But he says, so you see on and on the same corners volumetrics. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, like nominalizing but, it somehow. Yeah. yeah. But it, it's sort of like seeing this kind of weird 3D landscape, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. To me, I don't know. It reminds me, and maybe this is just me and having read a lot of Ashbury, but he was really interested in um, the painter De Chirico, who has yeah. these sort of haunting street scenes that have like kind of um, cones or. Um, uh, right. You know, yeah. So for geometric. People- yeah, yeah, they almost look like um, so people who can't picture a De Chirico painting. Um, uh, and Ashbury didn't have one on a cover of a book, right? Shadow yeah. Train, or yeah, yeah, um, um, or no, not that one. Um, he does use a De Chirico now. I can't remember. Anyway, okay, yeah. that's not the point. But what I was going to say is like they almost look like um, the you know if if an artist were doing a kind of preliminary sketch of something and was just sort of. Um, you know, putting in the kind of perfectly geometrical um, volumes before then rendering them, you know, that, but it's as though they've been left that way. So the, 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 the landscape is sort of dreamlike and surreal, but that, perfectly geometrical, vibe. right? Yeah. <laughs> that's the vibe that I was getting there. Yeah. That makes sense to me. So shadows then, and cold. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. well, so then I was just going to say like, so if, if we begin, um, if we begin very much in a kind of urban, a sort of surreal urban landscape that's been, you know, somehow that's being seen and registered and experienced through the experience of grief, um, very quickly we move on out of the city and into the suburbs. No, so yeah. So how should we? Um, yeah. How can we account for that, Andrew? Given what we've been saying about the significance of the poem's urban kind of yeah. setting to begin with. Well, it seems to me like, well, farther than anyone was ever called through increasingly suburban airs and ways with autumn falling over everything seems to indicate a kind of like trajectory for this poem away from the city, away right. from the other who's now dead or the one yeah. and, and into something that's increasingly suburban, um, right. which I don't think is accidental. Like I think it's sort yeah. of about, um, growing up and settling down um when you see the word suburban uh, right. i think both li- literally leaving the city behind but also you know the sort of um uh, template of of growing uh older and moving out of a city and into a, a home mm-hmm. in the suburbs that the speaker um the or the other here is going on that journey right and it seems it's almost like a star trek line like you know to boldly go where no man has gone before <laughs> yeah, farther than it, anyone was ever called yes except it's like an ironic it, reversal yeah. of that right that's what i was thinking yeah yeah it's uh, he's sort of to maybe... timidly go where every man goes before <laughs> exactly. right <laughs> exactly yeah through increasingly suburban airs and ways and then you get this um what i feel like is a dominant note in this poem with autumn falling over everything it's yeah. a very autumnal poem um, yeah. t- towards the end 
there's the or in the second half there's the line the year turning over on itself in yeah. november okay. so i feel like it's a really autumnal poem and maybe not everybody feels this way but autumn has its kind of built-in melancholy and sure. uh, loss and aging so it feels like it's autumnal for those reasons and this is a poem um about somebody feeling uh called to move on uh, to mm-hmm. go farther than anyone's ever gone before maybe farther than any of his friends when he was younger had gone before you know he right. feels like he's going far away from something right and it's into right. suburbia and into yeah. autumn yeah. and um uh i know that you know the poem soonest mended but it's a it's yeah. a famous um ashbury poem that also uh kind of was written before this one but it also is a poem sort of about middle age and about um, I don't have it in front of me, but like learning yeah. to um, conform basically and settle the down. Charity and the charity of the hard moments as they are doled out. Yeah, right. right. And the brushing yeah. of the teeth and all that, you yeah. know, as you kind of learn to, it, this feels like a similar gesture of with putting some away childish of, things and like yeah. growing up and yeah. Right. Um, with his, but, yeah. Good. Well, I was just going to say it's, I mean, it's, it, so, like if we were trying to, if if we were if we were trying, if if we've been trying to keep thinking about Ashbury's biography as as a, you know, not as a key to the poem, but as a as a kind of occasion for it, um, the 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 occasion it supplies is is sort of complex because, on the one hand, you could think of him as a poet who had this kind of youthful and formative and exciting experience in New York with this group of fellow travelers. And then like, he was the one, you know, I mean, in different, like O'Hara was the only one of them who died young, but perhaps in other ways, Ashbury might feel like he was the one of them who went on and yeah. in some ways so he, he certainly became the most famous. Yes. Um, but, and, but sorry, yeah. one of the complications I was going to say is just that, like, it's not as though he began in the city, as you told us before, he like True. began in the country <laughs> and then moved True. to the city and then has the sort of sub- suburban, I don't know, suburban. Eventually yeah. he moved to Hudson, right? Yes. Um, uh, okay. So say more. Yeah, yeah. No, I just think that, um, that in some ways, Ashbury is often narrativizing his own career as a poet, yeah. Yeah. but in vague and allegorical ways. Yeah. And um, I think here he, and, and, uh, so I think he is talking about being um, separated from his initial coterie. Yeah. Um, and at some point, right around this time, he gave an interview where he said, you know, uh, we all started out together, but somehow I separated myself or got separated from the others, meaning yeah. his group. Um, and critics were doing this. Harold Bloom, for example, was saying Ashbury is much better and doesn't deserve to be considered along with right. that group, the New York School of Poets. So, uh, you know, I think he's always thinking about sort of um, uh, groups and, and his relationship to those groups and to his group of friends. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, feel I, like I, I studied with Bloom and we read Ashbury and I can't imagine Bloom ever having taught O'Hara. And he probably never mentioned, and he probably didn't mention the New York school as a movement or anything. No, Ashbury was a part of the school of Stevens. Right. You know, that was what mattered to Bloom. Plucked out of the avant-garde collective. And so, you know, I I feel like this poem, at least on one level, is about kind of the movement from youth to age, but also from kind of um, avant-garde collectivity to Mm. um, being anointed as as the one, uh, you know, canonical poet. And also um, moving from a kind of um, 
uh, yeah, for, I guess it's sort of the same thing, but from like an avant-garde marginality to centrality. Right. So I think suburban here means a lot of things, but I think one thing right. it means is like physically leaving the city, maybe settling down elsewhere. He yes. did buy a house in Hudson, New York around this time right. And, right. and split his time between New York and there, but, um, yeah. but also sort of metaphorically, like a kind of a, a um, safer, tamer, more prosperous place right. that this, this uh, survivor has found himself. Um, right. And it's and it's uh, autumn leaves falling over everything, and uh, right. he's and and then you get this reference a little bit further not to to go to the yeah, next yeah. little no, bit, but yeah. of an obscure family being uh, well, the uh, autumn falling over everything, the yeah. plush leaves, the chattels in barrels of an obscure family being evicted into the way it was and is. Yeah, I I, I was going to <laughs> ask you about those lines because I I struggle with them and I think yeah. I could use some help. Um, I, I kind of making I think sense of them. I don't think they're that glossable in terms of especially the plush leaves, the chattels and yeah. barrels. There's no, there's no comma there. It's a, it's a strange, right. almost like a little like friction or static in the poem for a second for me. But I do think um, that, that uh, these are the belongings of an obscure family. They're the leaves right. and, and barrels um, leaves. I don't know. I think I said that, that in, in my reading of this, that maybe the leaves have something to do with like the pages of a book, like leaves of grass um, in the sense that this is a, also a story about poets and about, um, you know, having yeah. a, an obscure family being, being evicted with their leaves and their, and their stuff in barrels, um, right. maybe has something to do with, uh, you know, again, like that obscure family could either be, you know, his, his own family, uh, or the family that the one and the other belong to, mm-hmm. uh, but it also could be another playful wink at something like the, the New York school as a group. Right. Um, right. and, and, uh, it's no longer what it was, you know, right. um, right. obscure in the sense of like, nobody knew who they were. If you're thinking right. about the New York school right. obscure also that they were charged with being obscurantist and difficult. Right. And, right. uh, so that's, right. that's one way of reading it, but I think it's just, uh, you know, I think it feels to me like a, another image of kind of, there's just a lot of different moments in this poem of, again, that aut- autumnal mood of, of, of leaving, of being yeah. kicked out of, you know, there. Um, I also think there's another interesting line break of an obscure family being evicted. When you get to the end of that line, you think of, you know, a poor family being right. shoved out onto the street, but then you move to the next line and it's into the way it was and is. Yeah. They're kind of being shoved out into, into reality or something. Yeah. Um, well, r- well, right. So, so, and, and also the, um, so, so as you noted, there's no, there aren't any commas in the plush leaves, the chattels and barrels line, which seems like, the poem is breaking its own rules. Like this is, I mean, this is a poem that's difficult in many ways and, and in many of the ways that um, are, you know, characteristic of Ashbury, but it's like, it's well behaved with its grammar and punctuation as Ashbury poems tend to be. So in that sense, he's not, he's like, there is a kind of conservatism to like Ashbury's compositional style, even if in other ways, obviously he's a very avant-garde poet. So, so, but the fact that there aren't those commas tempts me to try to read the plush leaves as like to read leaves, not as a noun, but as a verb, verb. like, you know, um, it feels like it's saying the plush leaves the chattels, right? The plush. Yeah. Whatever that would mean. But like, so like the, the person leaves the something in something else. Right. But it's not person it's plush. And I'm not sure what to do with that. I don't Um, know, but he does have these moments where he, I like the way you put it, but breaks the rules of the, yeah. You know, and, and that's what I meant, sort of like like right. a moment of static, like uh, right. Um, maybe yeah. the emotion is kind of strong there, and so it right. just kind of goes a little haywire. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and I like being evicted into the way it was and is. I mean, it suggests that like what we're Im- what that family is being kicked out of is like a an interval of comfort that had been a kind of um, um, a, an illusory sort of respite from like the way things haven. actually are. Yeah, right? like a haven so, from the way things were and will be. Yeah, you know, yeah, right. I like right. That. Mm-hmm. And and so if and if what's being if if the occasion here is like grief of some kind, then we can say like, well, you know, we've now entered the period. Um, following the loved one's death in which that person doesn't exist, but there was a period before their birth in which they didn't exist, you know? And mm-hmm, so like mm-hmm. the way things, the way yeah. it was and is maybe. Or if that. it's about a collective moment of yeah. um, like togetherness and harmony, which I think comes back at the end. So we'll just preview yeah. that. But like, if, if, it, if there was a moment, like a shining moment, that mythical kingdom of our youth, um, right. it, it it didn't exist before and it doesn't exist after it's like a temporary temporary haven something like that refuge so and then there and then and then at the end of that stanza there there are revelations at last and 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 never trust ashbury if he says revelations at last (laughs) okay okay. you know like ashbury is um another very typical move of his is to sort of kind of promise uh, moments of epiphany or revelation or where everything will become clear and then kind of ironize it or undercut it or pull it away from you so uh just my my spidey sense goes up when ashbury says revelations at last because you're not going to really necessarily get some kind of final answer but it is it does build to a kind of conclusion right um Um, and what and what do you make of the conclusion that it does build to the the other i I mean I, i feel like we probably should pause for a second on just another really odd word choice but the other beached glimpses of what yeah. the other was up to and um beached is a strange word to use as a verb there um you know beach a ship maybe but how does yeah. it, you know, uh, the other beached glimpses and almost like with ashbury sometimes he's sort of substituting words that you kind of expect it to be a different word. Um, yeah. The other, it almost feels like it should read the other glimpsed beaches, or, which would be a normal like verb caught, noun. Caught, caught glimpses. Or or caught something. a glimpse of something, yeah. right? But a beached glimpses. I don't know what to make of it, except it's another just strange, unexpected I, moment. But I, yeah, go ahead. I, I, because I was troubled by this too, I looked <laughs> up um, beached in the, beach as a verb in the OED. And there is that, of course, that like primary sense of, you know, you beach a sh- sort of to run something onto a, sh- a boat normally onto a beach. Yeah. There's also a, a kind of um, uh, a now obsolete, I think, sense uh, uh, in which that word is used in, I think it's obsolete, is used in falconry as a way, as, um, as like giving a, to like whet an appetite by giving a little bit of a meal as a kind of um, preview or something. Right. That, that you know like I, I was like trying to see to, yeah. to kind of shoehorn that meaning into this but yes i agree it's clearly um there's something unusual about it yeah. the fact that and that word comes on the line break seems yeah to well like it, it feels like yeah. the other is the other is beached like a whale is beached right. the other beached. the other beached but then you right. get glimpses of what the other was up to so right and there it's, we depart from like the the more sensible language of the one and the other. Now they're right. both others somehow. And, and actually, right. you don't know which one's glimpsing yeah. which one, right? Right, you know, because you of could, that, yeah. Obviously, the one who's, well, I don't know. I was going to say the one who survived might have glimpses of what the one who died is up to. 
um, in the sense of like, they're not up to much because they're dead. Um, right. But then there's also a kind of supernatural idea that the, the one who died in the first line is catching glimpses of what the survivor is doing. Right. Right. Um, I don't think, you know, which somehow they're glimpsing, uh, they're catching glimpses of what each other are doing, even though one of them's dead and one of them's alive. Yeah, we don't know, but, but I, but I guess what we do know for whatever it's worth is are what the consequences of that recognition, that sort of moment of recognition are, which is that they grew to hate and forget each other. Yeah. And it's a strange end to the stanza because it feels like the stanza has been so much about like a, a close loved one or friend that's lost and your soul is wrenched out of you, but it ends and, and, and kind of moving on into the future, but it ends with this image of, um, yeah, you know, hatred and forgetting. Um, well, your but, first book is called beautiful enemies <laughs> and it's about friendship, right? So, yeah. So I'm sure you have something to say to us about yeah. how rivalry might sort of create these negative affects alongside the, yeah, that is a lot others. about what, what I talked about, about, um, this kind of strange mix of, enmity and and affection that colors these friendship between poets i mean i think they loved each other but there was also a kind of fear of being too close um and especially mm. a fear uh, on the part of ashbury or O'Hara of writing too much like one another or being lumped right. together right. and so um they do often come back to kind of negative affects of pushing away from friends of kind of clearing space for one's own individuality so i feel like you know that's this is an image of that a little bit of of um and also maybe just over time growing to, you know, yeah. the initial grief um, and closeness maybe fades and maybe there's resentment or there's, right. you know, uh, forgetting, right? You know, we move farther and farther from those that we once uh, were close to. So there's a bunch of different ways of reading it. Um, mm -hmm. It also, you know, echoes an early poem of O'Hara's about a brother and sister that has a mm. line in it. And thus they grew like giggling fir trees. And it's so similar that it struck me as like, it was about a brother and sister and O'Hara writes, and thus they grew like giggling fir trees. So they grew to hate yeah. and forget each other. Yeah. Um, that maybe he's sort of alluding to an O'Hara poem about sibling closeness, but kind of like reversing it about growing to. I would say either about. alluding to it or he is unconsciously reproducing it or, yeah. you know, somewhere in between those two possibilities, maybe yeah. half consciously echoing mm -hmm. it. Um. And 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 changing its tone and meaning right. almost entirely, right? Yeah, obviously much more negative. But uh, I feel like it's it's a um, something about growing farther away from the person that one was close to um, over time, um, right? And and uh, because there's been some separation or something, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. as though mm -hmm. it's a kind of necessary kind of right. coping strategy or something, right? Yeah. So and then okay, so then we get to the the break between stanzas and the second stanza begins. Yeah. So I cradle this average violin, right? Yeah. And that's the first um, I in the poem, the first mm -hmm. first person, mm -hmm. and the, the uh, we get those um, vague pronouns in the first stanza: one, the other, uh, you know. And um, uh, uh, um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, there's no I, and then you and yeah. it suddenly moves from I think the past tense to the present. So right. I cradle like we suddenly are in the present, mm -hmm. and we get a kind of direct Ashbury first person line so i cradle cradle this average violin that knows only forgotten show tunes um, almost as though this were like um that that the the kind of relationship between those two halves feels almost to me like the octa and sestet of a sonnet or something I mean, they're, they're the stanzas are longer than that but like there's a right. turn there there's right? a very clear turn um yeah and it's arranged i think very carefully arranged into these two stanzas and mm -hmm. um i was thinking about the fact that it's a poem about a pair of people Mm -hmm. There's a pair of stanzas, 
I don't think right. that's accidental, you know, that right. it's sort of about one and the other and how they relate. And, and yeah. you have these two stanzas with a kind of gap in the middle and a turn, a turn away from the first one in a, in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also I noticed that the first one is um, 12 lines and the second one yeah. is 11 lines. Yeah, I was which counting is, while we were talking too. <laughs> which is <laughs> kind of right. neat, yeah. you know, as like uh, yeah. if it's a poem about like subtraction and loss uh, to yeah. go from sort of 12 uh, to 11 is, is interesting, you know, that the, the two pairs don't totally match, you know. Right, and, right. Um, yeah. Um, so you get this sort of first person steps forward and says, you know, and, and it's a little hard to know how to read so, like, is it therefore mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of everything in the first stanza, but, yeah. or just here I am. So, so I cradle this average violin that knows only forgotten show tunes, but. Um, what sense it, might but, that might make as a description, a self-description of Ashbury's yeah. part? You know. I mean, it feels like a meta poetic, you know, mm-hmm. here, here I am with my, with my um, instrument and it's, uh, uh, you know, obviously kind of calls back to the title in a way that Ashbury poems don't always mm-hmm. do, but it seems like a sign of a musician, you know, and mm-hmm. I cradling this average violin. Um, but as a statement about himself as a poet, uh, Ashbury is often ironic and anti-heroic about his own poetry that yeah. he's just sort of bumbling along trying to figure things out and <laughs> right. you know art has its limitations you can't stay there forever and art yeah. itself is sort of limited you know th- there's a kind of ironic amusement about yeah um and and a skepticism of heroic claims about art and poetry right. in his work as a whole and his own work as right. a kind of you know i'm just doing the best i can sort of thing so i feel like right. it's a typical moment of self-deprecation Right. Uh, yeah, I've got this average violin and all I know are old tunes, you know, sort of right. forgotten show tunes. Yeah. Um, and, may- and maybe there is the sense in which like his poems are, you know, like um, I'm thinking of that phrase, which Karen Rothman has used now as the um, title of her biography of his early years. Um, the songs, right, we, songs know we know best. best. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The sense that Ashbury has in his mind. And I, you know, um, sorry, that Ashbury has in his mind like a kind of repertoire or songbook or something mm-hmm. that he's that's that's old fashioned actually, yeah, and that he's kind of always like riffing on it or humming along to it or approximating right. it in some kind of performance. Yeah. yeah, and he often will write poems that seem to again sort of self deprecatingly acknowledge that. Uh, everything's already been said before. I've already yeah. written all my poems before. Here I go writing another poem. Often, mm-hmm. at, uh, we haven't talked about this, but often the first poem in his books are very yeah. important. Yeah. Um, and, and I do think it's important that this is the opening poem of, of a new collection that they often take stock of where he's been. They often are about like, um, you know, I forget the line exactly, but like, you know, mm. um, all uh, for this whole season, you know, the pages have been musty and now I'm turning the page and starting again. Um, mm-hmm. The first poem in self-portrait um, yeah. has one put into the packet boat. Um, so yeah. maybe there's something here about, he always, he always sort of like trying to rev himself up again to write the next poem. So right. maybe here he's acknowledging all I, all I have is this average violin and these old songs we know best that I keep riffing on um, right. over and over again. Also, there's something of that like sense of diminishment uh, yeah. maybe is also about building on the sense of loss from the first half. You know, you're not around anymore, my friend. <laughs> um, uh-huh. I'm getting older and more suburban and all I've got is this average violin and old show tunes. Right. So, you know, maybe, maybe it's a consequence of the losses of the first half. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I'm not sort of capable of producing the same kind of music without my bandmate or whatever, right. as it were. Right. Yeah. And, um, and, um, mm-hmm. 
yeah, that that's sort of how how I read it. And then you know, um, the 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 violin knows only forgotten show tunes, but argues the possibility of a free declamation anchored to a dull refrain. Yeah, some um, very kind of Latinate words and yeah. yeah. So say say something about that. Can um, you offer a yeah, gloss? free declamation. I mean, um, uh, you know, it's also really. I was thinking about how so they grew to hate and forget each other is like a very unLatinate, very like mm-hmm. staccato single yeah. syllable lines, yeah. and this is very different. Argues yeah. the possibility of a free declamation anchored to a dull refrain. It seems to me like something is going on there. I'm not sure how to read it exactly, but uh, of a tension between um, freedom and um, constraint or freedom and, and um, uh, repetition of a refrain, perhaps in a show tune, but like, you know, there's a possibility of saying something new and free here, but it's also keeps coming back to like the, the dull refrain. The yeah. It's, it's, it's deeply derivative somehow. Or right. Unoriginal. But there's a tug of yeah. war there. Like it's trying yeah. to say something new, but I'm also anchored or tied to this, you know, here comes the chorus again. You know? Maybe in the same way that the year turns over on right. itself in November. Right. There's so a kind there's of cycle. A kind of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, go on. Sorry. So yeah, I mean, I love the lines of the year t- turning over on itself in November with the spaces among the days more literal, the meat more visible on the bone. Um, again, feels like it's very much a poem about like autumn heading into winter, yeah. aging. Time, you know, Ashbury is always writing about time passing and the yes. uh, the pathos of time passing. And he said in some interviews around this time that he suddenly realized that as I've gotten older, it seems to me that it, um, what I've been writing about all these years is the passage of time during which I thought I wasn't writing about anything. <laughs> you know, <that> he <laughs> yeah. Suddenly realized that it's the subject of his poetry. So this is yeah. an example of that, I guess. Of and the, 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 the final words of um, self-portrait, you know, the, right. the poem, Whispers, right? out, Whispers of out of Time. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that but, you love the the Chateau hardware too. And, you know, he says it was always November there. Yes, right? another reference begins? to November. Yeah. I, I do love yeah. that one. It was always November there. Yeah. Um, and here it's the, the year turning over on itself. Although, as you said, it's also a sign of like uh, a cycle, not just, we're not, you know, we're, the year's turning over on itself, but it will turn again, I guess. Yeah, but maybe I, we're making um, compost, <laughs> a compost <laughs> pile out of our leaves right. or something. Yeah, and I, I think they're such beautiful lines. I'm not sure what they mean exactly. The spaces among the days more literal, the meat more visible on the bone. Mm. I don't know if you have any ideas about that, but I mean, it, uh, it feels like it's about like the, the 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 spaces among the days more literal seems like about gaps or emptiness or there's something. Yeah. You know, uh, maybe even the nights are longer. So the spa- yeah, as you get into winter, there's more night and more more spaces between days. But maybe so. I mean, I take. Um... I don't know about the meat more visible on the bone, but the spaces among the days more literal, I guess I can imagine a sense in which, you know, even if it's not about O'Hara, if it's just, you know, if there's um, the loss of a friend, um, you know, empties out your days, right? If it's a person that with whom you'd otherwise be spending time or time on the phone or time devoting thought to if nothing yeah. else um, it feels like it should be uh, that's beautiful i think but it mm. should be like tangible or visible it's another place yeah. he always like slides in these words that don't quite fit the spaces more among literal. the days more tangible 
right. um, but more literal. But it, although I feel like it has the same meaning of yeah, what you just said, but that's it's interesting. It, it opens it up a little bit more. Like, I don't know why the literal meat would space. be more visible on the bone, yeah. though. Yeah, I was I was trying to think about that. Like I've always liked that line. It feels like yeah. almost like from a fairy tale or something. But I don't know the, the meat more visible on the bone. Uh, or like a saying or something, but um, well, there is the saying of like you know, let's put some meat on the bone or something, right? right? It's let's, playing let, with that idiom. Let's add some substance to this um, abstract idea. It, but you it, know, if if it's turning into November, it's getting yeah. getting on towards winter, and the meat's more visible on the bone. I I guess my first instinct is it has something to do with like uh, getting thinner, and then yeah. having the meat, but. I don't even know if that makes sense. Like if some, if an animal or a person is getting increasingly yeah. like depleted and thinner, would the meat be more visible on the bone? I guess maybe like you'd be more scrawny, like you'd see, but you really would see the bones more visible inside the meat. Um, yeah. You yeah. know, like if you saw somebody's ribs uh, or a dog's legs, yeah. look, you know, more bony, but it, it seems to have something to do with like, um, well, I don't know. For maybe we're supposed. To, it's November. Maybe, yeah. maybe we're. Um, maybe this is a Thanksgiving table or something. Oh yeah. Um, and um, you know, the meat and the bone in question here is like not a, a living animal or or human, um, but um, no, that you know, a, 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 a you know some a bird ready to be carved or something mm-hmm. like that. And and maybe you know, if this returns us to the kind of sibling reading, then the kind of um, familial dining table. And the right. sharing of uh, food and so on is more to And the it point. doesn't necessarily even have to be sibling or familial, like, because it does Im- immediately move into this image mm-hmm. of like an early moment of, well, literally dining together, picnicking, and, and just togetherness of collectivity. Yeah, um, I so love I, that line, how we picnicked in Pine Forest. It's it just yeah. it's so nice to say or to hear, if nothing else. But um, um, yeah, so, that, so, so those are the last five lines of the poem should we remind people of them yeah Um, i I just absolutely love this ending um our question of a place of origin hangs like smoke how we picnicked in pine forests in coves with the water always seeping up and left our trash sperm and excrement everywhere smeared on the landscape to make of us what we could yeah so just beautiful writing, I think, but uh, and also yeah. weird, and like it moves from a kind of high lyrical to to sort of trash and sperm. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of things are going on here, and I do think Good. like the the fifth to the last line seems key um, to the whole poem. But like our question of a place of origin hangs like smoke. Mm. Yeah. Seems so, like, so so tease apart some of those things yeah. for us. Yeah. Um. I mean, you know, the whole poem. If you read it from the beginning as a being a poem about um, two close people and one has died and, and mm-hmm. what happens afterwards, then it sort of ends by turning back to some question of like where we started out from. And it's not right. my origin. It's our, it's, or it's not, it's not even the question of a place of origin. It's our question. Um, and it's about how we, you know, it's very insistent on the we and the our in the end. So right. it feels like to me, again, he's thinking about, whatever group it is, uh, some early moment of togetherness, a group, a group of friends, a family, but um, it doesn't answer the question. It's typical of Ashbury that it's sort of like, it's a, a question hanging like smoke, which is a lovely image of yeah. sort of this, I don't know, how, you could read it a lot of ways, but sort of insubstantial, wispy, yeah. hard to grasp. Um, yeah. And where did we come from? Um, how did we start out? Um, how do we get, is there some way to go back to like what he calls in soonest mended the, the mooring of starting out that day right. so long ago, it's the same kind of gesture about like, yeah. where did we start out from? Uh, he's always kind of 
circling back to this um, kind of maybe primal or early moment. And, and it seems... And- and that is sorry to interrupt you, Andrew, but sure. that that is um, I just want to note here, like in some ways, that structure of like the circling back is like this ancient, you know, it's the it's the Odyssey story. It's like um, sorry, the Odyssey, not the Odyssey, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but like it's the Nostos story, right? The the kind of homecoming, the the idea of homecoming, of circling back, of the return. But as you say. Um, it's always like for Ashbury, it seems like it te- it's tends to be like shadowy or attenuated or impossible in some you can sense. never quite get there. Or when you think you've gotten there, it slides away from you. Or right. I mean, whatever. so, mm-hmm. so, so the mooring of starting out is like, um, is there's, it's like a clever and oxymoronic, um, kind of riff on the morning of starting out where the mooring is, seems to be something that would attach you that wouldn't let you start out from it. Yeah. And here, yeah, it's like this um it's this kind of flickering shadowy scene of origin. It's not um all of us gathered round the table and mom and dad are there and what you know, it's not right. that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's um interesting that it's a place of origin and not a time of origin. Yeah. That he kind of like spatializes. Uh, he likes yeah. to do this a lot, but spatializes time. Yeah. Um, and and so it's like a place of origin um that he's going back to. And it is um, a kind of a memory, I guess. Uh, it's a strange memory to end on. Very vivid. Um, like you said, I love the the sound of how we picnicked in Pine Forest. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not in the city anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting uh, that it does go back to a kind of pastoral or non-city place, yeah. or at least, uh, uh, you know, in the woods. Um, and it's sort of... Uh, uh, maybe typical of us to sort of throw us off and send us into the woods. Um, it also sounds like a nomadic kind of existence, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I, sort of stopping to eat in the forest or something, that kind mm-hmm, of thing. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then leaving our stuff everywhere and yeah. moving on to the next place right. or something, you know, but it's this, this very kind of, you could say, quotidian daily kind of moment a very just a a moment in the past that is rich with meaning for him resonant with meaning and it is a place of origin for him and and the other and whoever else he's talking about but it's a a memory of picnicking in pine forests in coves with the water always seeping up um and and that line suggests to me like it's under threat um it's sort of like you know it seems like a stable, this maybe goes back to your point, but a stable yeah. point of origin, but it's actually, I, I, for some reason, it reminded me this time around of um, something to do with like the movie, the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, but like, uh, the yeah. memories in that movie are kind of, uh, you know, dissolving and fragmenting. Oh, and, but here's the, the water is seeping up in the cove where we once had. This I, I, I can't talk about that movie without crying. So we're going to, okay. Um, yeah. Um, but I, um, you yeah. know what I mean though? Like, yeah, about, yeah. Oh, about, I know what mm-hmm. you mean. Absolutely. You know what it, it was reminding me of not the picnic in pine forest, but the coves with the water always seeping up like, like you, it's reminding me of um, the prelude and Wordsworth and the, um, the dream of the Arab, you know, that, that, the moment of like the, um, I'm not going to be able to quote it exactly, but, but there is something sort of like romantic and kind of dreamlike and, um, and also, um, this, this feeling that like disaster is kind of lurking at the margins or something. There's something precarious about this kind of, um, origin story. 
Right. I think that's, it was both maybe precarious to begin with. And then it's also precarious or vulnerable as a memory that it's not, you know, that it's sort of being washed away. So I want to ask you though, to say something about the kind of what seems to me like a sort of jarring shift of tone with the scatological, like sperm and excrement everywhere. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah. how do you, I have thoughts about it. I mean, it, it yeah. definitely is jarring. Um, mm-hmm. Somehow, you know, he obviously is going from this sort of lyrical uh, voice to to um, mm-hmm. uh, something sort of abject um, and, mm-hmm. and surprising, low, you know, mm-hmm. trash and sperm and excrement. Suddenly, we're you know talking about you know poop, um, but I find it very beautiful anyway. And I think that I kind of see what he's doing here about this memory of this early moment in which um, you know we we tried sort of desperately to leave behind something on the world um, smeared mm. on the landscape, which is smeared as sort of painterly almost, you know, we have smeared right. ourselves onto the landscape to, to make of us what we could. Um, you know, I think it is uh, bodily in a way that Ashbury sometimes is sort of acknowledging right. the realities of, of bodies um, mm-hmm. that we, uh, uh, it was, I don't know, there's a line that I'm not going to remember, but about, um, uh, our bo- policing our bodily functions in, in yeah. Chateau, Chateau hardware, yeah. but yeah. something about bodily functions here, but also just like um, it is a deliberately ironic, I think metaphor for art making or poetry making. Yeah. Um, I, I take it as he's not so interested in like we left behind like our, you know, bags of Fritos mm-hmm. and, and our, mm-hmm. and our shit, but like we tried to, leave something a mark on the world um richard poirier actually who's a Mm. very interesting Mm -hmm. scholar of american poetry and and Mm -hmm. the pragmatist tradition he has a a, just he just um has a passage very briefly in his book the renewal of literature which Mm. might be the first time i saw this poem i'm not sure probably not but he he does Mm -hmm. talk about wallace stevens and a really wonderful stevens poem called postcards from a volcano about um people trying to that children picking up our bones will never know that we once lived here. It's about sort of leaving behind something for posterity. And then he says, Ashbury's poem, Street Musicians, is in this tradition. And then he just ends Uh, the chapter. But um, that idea of sort of uh, trying to leave something of ourselves, trying to make, I just find the end very kind of moving, to make of us what we could. Sperm would be one way to sort of leave something behind biologically to, to, you know, sort of gestures obviously towards biological reproduction. Though for for Ashbury and O'Hara, you know, queer poets, um, like sperm wasn't going to have that function. Right. Um, and excrement is another way of leaving something of yourself behind. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like that reading, Um, Andrew. So something to do with, um, again, kind of like unheroic, uh, maybe, Mm -hmm. um, somewhat ironic, but about the gestures that we made way back when in our attempt to kind of make, make something of ourselves and to leave something of ourselves smeared on the landscape um to make of us what we could yeah yeah yeah. um to make of us what we could i mean i think there is a kind of a there's a possible queer reading of this poem about Uh a kind of um early uh queer collectivity um Mm -hmm. that uh uh that was uh, you know a memory of this kind of early moment He, he this comes up in a number of poems where he sort of figures a kind of idyllic um what's the word I'm looking for? Um, almost Arcadian kind of moment of brotherhood mm-hmm. uh, and, and fraternity among um, friends and brothers, but it's sort of coded as a kind of, you know, an early gay enclave that yeah. was always under threat. Um, and yeah. 
was uh, policed and um, repressed and so on, but was a kind of idyllic moment of, of connection. And yeah. I feel like this, it, there's one reading of this poem that might gesture in that direction and, yeah. and sperm being related to that as sort of a non-procreative, um, but, uh, but also, you know, p- pleasure, hedonism as well. Yeah, well, you know, right. So, I mean, I feel, I feel like this is all implicit in what, what you've, you've just been saying, but right, it's as, it's as though like the sperm, which, you know, in a kind of normative um, situation, like might be taken to, you know, be sort of instrumental to biological reproduction and social reproduction and in the ways that um, we're accustomed to here is sort of like repurposed as like, I liked what you said earlier about like, almost like painting, like paint on the wall. So there's this kind of like, um, maybe what what's being described here is a kind of redirecting of certain like bodily um, functions into art making or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, he could have said, to be equally sort of like formal, he could have said our trash, um, urine and excrement or piss or pee or something. Mm-hmm. But it's, I think, right. very noticeably and jarringly sperm yeah. there. And I think it has a lot yeah. of different meanings there. But, um, you know, I guess, you, you know, one could see this as sort of like a weird turn into kind of like the, the gross and abject. But yeah, it does seem to try to recuperate it with this idea of sort of, I was thinking this time, it's sort of like a poem about littering at the end. Like, why'd you yeah. leave all your stuff in the pine forest? <laughs> uh, an eco reading of it or something. Right. But I, I don't really take it that way as the main point. Um, yeah. I, but, you know, it is some kind of maybe also useful abandon because it's also like, I remember way back when, when we picnic in pine forest and we sort of, just lived freely and left our left our kind of waste behind and yeah. uh, but it was but the purpose of it wasn't just to be messy or to ruin the landscape but to actually to make of ourselves something to make of us what we could a kind of almost like desperate attempt to to change the look of things as stevens puts it in postcard from a volcano i love it and it's sort of well it leaves open the question of like well what could we make of us, right? It doesn't uh, say, right? Yeah. The, and, the, and, I just turned the page in 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 my copy of Houseboat Days, and the next poem in the book is called "The Other Tradition," right? Which right. is so that's interesting, right? That's I think it lends credence to this way of reading. Yeah, yeah. and that poem is all about um, sort mm-hmm. of uh, uh, you know, and at least on one level, a kind of avant-garde tradition that Ashbery yeah. is sort of, um, and it's also about um, a group of people who shared. Uh, time together in in working in this other tradition so yeah yeah i do think it's ultimately at least in part a poem about um growing up and away from a kind of early moment i think i can't remember what you called it but like sort of a salad days or like early happy Uh moment of heady collaboration and excitement in new york and then growing older growing more settled down and feeling sad and autumnal about everything and then just sort of turning back and trying to remember this this earlier moment yeah. and not being able to quite grasp it but remembering some kind of exciting moment when we first set out to to make of something of ourselves yeah something yeah like that. yeah oh that's great no that that that's beautiful um and and what i wish i, I wish we could do is like just now turn the page let's talk about the next one <laughs> we'll, we'll be here for the next 30 hours <laughs> right. people right, right. Um, <laughs> a four-day podcast yeah why not let's really test the medium um that would be like an everyday life project yes, right totally. yeah. okay good oh uh, unfortunately i mean probably we can't do that i'm gonna i'm getting hungry 
Um, <laughs> but um, Andrew, it's been such a pleasure to get to talk with you. And I wonder if just one last indulgence I can ask of you is to is to read the poem from beginning to end one more time so that our audience can hear it in your voice. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, street musicians. One died and the soul was wrenched out of the other in life, who, walking the streets, wrapped in an identity like a coat, sees on and on the same corners, volumetrics, shadows under trees, farther than anyone was ever called through increasingly suburban airs and ways with autumn falling over everything. The plush leaves, the chattels and barrels of an obscure family being evicted into the way it was and is. The other beached glimpses of what the other was up to, revelations at last. So they grew to hate and forget each other. So I cradle this average violin that knows only forgotten show tunes, but argues the possibility of free declamation anchored to a dull refrain, the year, the year turning over on itself in November, with the spaces among the days more literal, the meat more visible on the bone. Our question of a place of origin hangs like smoke, how we picnicked in pine forests, in coves with the water always seeping up, and left our trash, sperm, and excrement everywhere, smeared on the landscape to make of us what we could. Hmm. Uh, Andrew Epstein, thank you so much uh, for reading the poem. Thank you for the, the conversation and for all the conversations we've um, gotten to have and will have about poetry. I, I really appreciate your friendship. Dale, thank you. This was a real pleasure. Okay. Well, um, thanks everyone for listening and um, stay tuned. We'll have, we'll have more episodes for you soon. And um, I hope you all take care. Bye now.